Okay, let's go ahead and get started. So we have been the last four weeks, well, no, the last three weeks, this is the third week in the series. Um, we've been looking at this series like what is the scripture and why do we study the scripture and it's been a bit more of a lecture series more than a preaching series but it's the we've been looking at does the how the bible was formed can we trust that we've looked at how does science relate to the bible just really what are some common objections to scripture and there are reasoning behind this is we're trying to think if we're going to base everything that we do this entire school year off Scripture and really your entire um, college career, and we are, everything that we're going to do in here is going to be based off Scripture. Um, it's based off the God that Scripture teaches us. If we're going to do that, why do we trust the Scriptures? And if we're going to do that, why do we trust the words that are in the text? Why do we trust, um, why do we trust this book more than other books? Do we b- believe that it's valid? There's all these common objections we might hear to Scripture. How was the Scripture actually made? Um, how, how do I interact with Scripture? We're going to look at that next week. We're going to y'all ever figured out like, okay, this Bible it's a good thing, but what do I actually do with it? You know, we're going to look at what. How do you actually engage with the, the text next week? Um, but this week, we're really looking at the idea of what are some different common objections to Scripture, um, in order that we can have a greater understanding of the validity of Scripture in order that we can trust the authority of Scripture in our lives. So the way that we could do that, there's a lot of different ways that we could go about that. And I'm going to be very specific today, but the idea isn't necessarily that we cover just one topic, but it's the idea of objections to Scripture on a, on a moral level. And so we're, people you might occasionally hear, like, did you know that the Bible actually contradicts itself, that it's full of all kinds of moral discre- discrepancies? Maybe you might hear that, like, just like you probably, last week we talked about how science and the Bible inter- interchange and how they work with each other. And you might have heard growing up that science and the Bible are actually enemies with each other and how people from science believe one thing and people from the Bible believe another. And we talked about, if you, or if you were, weren't here, you can check on Spotify and podcast it, but um, we talked about how the science, science and the Bible actually complement each other and how they were made to complement each other. We looked at some of the intricacies of what that looks like and how God created the world and what were some of those things. But today, I want us to look at morality. Can we trust the morality of the scripture? So before we start that, uh, we're going to pray and then we're going to get going. Cool? So let's pray. God, um, there's a lot of material today. May our heart and our ears um, be ready to receive the material that you have for us, God. And can we um, process the information you want us to process? And may our our trust of your word and the morality and the authenticity and the authority of your word, may it grow as a result of today, Lord. In your name, amen. Okay, so when we deal with morality in the scriptures... Uh, you'll, you'll hear a lot of different arguments that come against morality in the scriptures. You'll say, hey, did you know the Bible actually is sexist? People will say something like that. Did you know that the Bible condones genocide, the killing of thousands of people? Um, did you know that the Bible actually is full of slavery? Or they might say, did you know that the Bible is racist? Did you know that the Bible is blank? And they'll throw something out there. Um, and our goal isn't necessarily to get upset at the person who threw it out. Our goal right now is for us to build our foundation as to what the scripture says so that we can go from there. I'm hoping this is making sense. Our goal is to understand that the morality of scripture 
is true and that it is completely moral and that God's authority when it comes to morality there is is the highest level of authority. Now we're going to we're going to look at that by going through a very specific example. We're going to look at the issue of slavery and is there slavery in the Bible? Man, wow, Sunday morning, what a fun topic. Um, we're going to look at the issue of slavery in the Bible and this is going to get a little little brainy, but Remember, the idea isn't just to focus on slavery here. We're going to talk a lot about slavery. But the idea is to understand that when you are faced with an, the, an objection to the Bible's morality, there is always ground to stand on, no, actually the Bible isn't sexist. Actually, there's slavery is not what you think it is in the Bible. Or the Bible is not condoning the, the killing of thousands of thousands of people. You, there's always ground for you to stand on that. And I'm going to use this as an example for that. The reason that's so important is that there will be times that we doubt the position and the authority of God's word in our lives. There will be moments when we, when we do not, when we're, well, someone says something to us, or we're just caught in our mind and we can't get out of our head and we're just, I don't believe this. I don't believe this. And we have to get to a place where we trust the word of God so much and we trust what God's saying in it so much. And so what we're actually doing today is we're playing devil's advocate. But people are saying, hey, look, there's slavery in the Bible. What are you going to do about that? And I'm going to use that as an example to show us how we can combat things. So the very first thing that I want us to talk about when we deal with these types of arguments of morality is we have to look uh, at the framework of those arguments. So the, the first thing I want to say is that not all commands of Scripture, now follow me here, are universal commands. What I mean by that is that not all commands that are given are meant to be applied in all circumstances. A great example of a command that is given that's not meant to be uh, applied in all circumstances in Genesis 12, chapter 1. So where Abram, I think the screen verse is on the screen, but where Abram actually is told by God to pack up your bags and go to a land that I'm going to show you, right? He says, he is coming into a relationship with God, really, and he says, hey, God tells him, hey, pack up your bags, and I'm going to go to a place where I'm going to show you. Is that command universally applied everywhere else? No. Upon receiving salvation, Carson didn't say, you know what, I'm packing my bags and I'm going to go to the land of my father's house and I'm going to go to my kindred. And I, and no, this is not a universally applied command. Now, was it very specific to what Abram was asked of the Lord? Yes. Now, could you also say, well, maybe there's like some universal elements of like obedience and following the Lord when he leads you. Like, yes, there is. There's totally a universal element in this command, but not all commands are universal. Now, an example of a universal command, though, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Okay, you're, everyone's going to do that, right? Everyone's doing that. Abraham's doing that. Isaac's doing that. Carson's doing that. Look at that. You made the top three. Well done. And so those are the commands that are universally followed. So when we look at law, and we're going to, this is because we're going to look at slavery, and we're going to actually find that there are laws about slaves, and in Scripture, and we're, just breathe, everything's okay. I know slavery is like one of those words that people get, oh, it's going to be okay. Now, when we look about law, let's first look, what is the idea of law? When God gives law, it has two major purposes, Okay. So today is going to be like a note-heavy day. If y'all like taking notes, you're going to have a, 
a hand cramp at the end of this. Uh, so congratulations. When God gives law, it has two major purposes. So the first thing is that law highlights sin and draws us to Jesus. I want you to think about this. If, uh, if there was no such thing as sin, there would be no need for law. If we didn't have law, would man just do whatever he wants? If there were no speed limits, would he just fly down the road? If, there was, if, we, if we did not have to pay taxes or if there was no law in general, how would man react? Man would react with chaos, right? And so we, man needs structure. Man needs organization. So law gives us structural organization. And within structural organization, there's the ability to see right from wrong, right? You understand when you have a law, what is the best way to follow the law and what is breaking the law. So in other words, you know it's right, you know it's wrong. So as we're building this argument here, if that means that a law highlights sin, and whenever we recognize our sin, we recognize the absence of Jesus in our lives. So law allows us to recognize sin and draws us towards Jesus. The first thing law does. The second thing is that obedience to God's law, and Kendall uses this phrase all the time, obedience to God's law is a signpost for the kingdom of God. Whenever we are obeying what God has asked us to obey, we're visually representing to the world what it means to follow God. All throughout scripture, there's text that says, do you want things to go well with you, man? Obey the Lord. Do you want this to, do you want to live a long life? Obey the Lord. That's like an Old Testament way of saying that. Um, do you want to thrive? That's like our way of saying it, right? Do you want to thrive as a human? Obey the Lord. And there's scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture that says this. And so God's law is good. So when we look at the law and it talks about slavery, we have to understand that it is good. Okay, so we're going to look at slavery. Now, this is the reason we're bringing this up, because this is a common objection to Scripture. And I want us to not only have things that we can talk to people about if someone does this, but that's not the end goal. Remember, the end goal here is building our foundation. Why do we trust the morality of Scripture? Okay, that's the end goal. Does that make sense? Anyway, why do we trust the morality of Scripture? Now, a lot of you guys are in here probably saying, I already trust it. I've been in Sunday school my whole life. Scripture, moral, got it. But we're going to want to build that foundation, okay? So the issue of slavery, um, first of all, we have to look at slavery from an Old Testament and a New Testament perspective. So the slavery that, um, which biblical writers lived in, first of all, this is the most important thing y'all need to hear, is that it was not based around race. Okay, so if we're, we're, we're tackling the issue of slavery, and that it's in scripture, and we're going to look at some scriptures that to kind of show what I'm talking about. But the issue of slavery that we think about, when I say slavery, we automatically in this room think about Civil War slavery. We think about transatlantic uh, slavery. You might think about sex trafficking or any of those things. Um, and a lot of that has a completely different connotation and meaning than the slavery that we're going to talk about today. So when we think about slavery... We, we're, we are automatically going to start thinking about slavery in terms of race. We're thinking about it from a racist idea. And one of the things that we have to understand is that slavery in biblical times is not based among race. So, and matter of fact, when different areas in biblical times were conquered, the area that was conquered became uh, slaves of those who conquered it. Right? Like if I had a tribe and Carson, I'm picking on you today, Carson. Carson was king of the Carsonites. And uh, the Johnanites beat the Carsonites. 
This this is awesome. Uh, so Carson becomes the Carsonites. Sorry, become our slaves, right? And that's culturally how it works. So slavery is something that's kind of institutionalized in culture in Bible times. So let's look at the Old Testament first. And this is going to be just perspective for y'all. You're probably just going to learn some about Old Testament slaves. Um, I kind of, I might have read a little way too much about this stuff. So um, basic ancient uh, slave law. Are y'all ready for this? Man, this is so exciting. Okay. Ancient slave y'all. There are three things that were in ancient slave y'all. This is not biblical slaves. This is just what slave life was for the Carsonites. Um, so a slave was property. The slave owner's rights of the slave person uh, were that the slave owner had rights over the person and the work of the slave. So the owner was in charge of the work and the slave. And the thirdly, the slave was stripped of his identity. That's racial, familial, social, and martial identity. Um, so you ha- he was property, owned, his work was a, a completely uh, connected with him, and that he was stripped of his identity. This is what it looked like. So that is what slavery looks like. Now, when the Old Testament talks about slavery, it's, it's going to be shocking, it talks about it very countercultural to that. It's, the Bible is often, often countercultural to what's normal, right? That's something that we know. So he talks, the Bible talks about slavery very countercultural to this. Let's read some scriptures. I'm going to read them very quickly uh, to save y'all some time. Today's text is just going to be on the screen. It's going to be a lot easier. All right, y'all, y'all are welcome. And so um, we're going to go Exodus 21. We're going to read some verses on slavery. The idea here is let's just see what the Bible says about slavery, okay? Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them when you buy a Hebrew slave. He shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out for free, for nothing. If he comes in single, he goes out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. Now, if his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters. He shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. So voluntarily stain. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear with an awl, and he shall be a slave forever. That's kind of interesting language. Can we go to verse 16? Do we have Exodus 21, 16? So, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So let's just pause real quick. Man, okay, that is slavery that we're kind of used to. And so when I say biblical slavery, I'm going to define it in a second, but this is a if this should point right now, this is not the same thing as regular slavery. Whoever steals a man and sells him put, gets put to death. Okay. If we look at verse 26 of Exodus 21. So do we have that one? Please let me have that one. All right, perfect. So when a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. Okay, let's just stop there before we go into the next verses. Um, so Old Testament slavery, we just kind of read a lot, and so... Let's just break this down real quick. Old Testament slave laws were not race-based, but they were actually temporary and voluntarily employment-based uh, in order to pay off a debt. So if I ordered, Carson, you're going to be my guy today. If I, um, if I just owed $100 to someone and I just couldn't come up with the money, what I could do is I could sell myself to Carson. And this, this is some, that terminology really, we struggle with that terminology just 
let's think, think big here. So I would give myself, sell myself to Carson, and I would say, hey, look, I'm going to work for you until my debt's paid off or until six years, whichever one comes first. And what that was is that was, I was working to pay off a debt. It was something that someone who was struggling financially would do. Now, when, that, when they did that, they would become a part of the family of that individual. So I would become a part of Carson's family. And I would just be like, you know, one of the bros. Um, I would have all of the same rights, um, most of the same rights, forgive me. I, most of the same rights. I'd be honored in that house. I would have an identity. I would be someone who's loved and cared for. I wouldn't be someone that was beaten. Uh, I would be someone who was an employee of that house. And it was an honorable job to be a servant. A matter of fact, it was God's way of caring for the poor. And we're going to look at that in a second. In Deuteronomy 15, it says this. Um, so if your brother, Hebrew man or Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. Um, and in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. So let's stop there. What's this with the sixth year and the seventh year thing? All right. So basically, this is how this works. God's design for slavery in, in the Old Testament was never that they would just be enslaved forever. As a matter of fact, it wasn't just for people to be enslaved. Um, the design was to help with poverty, to help with the community's income and economical status. So every six years, your debt got forgiven. I don't care if you like owed $100 million or $1 million, right? You're working every day, and if you only paid off $30,000 and it's after six years, your debt's forgiven. That's, that's how it works. Uh, and so there's this... It's the year of Jubilee. Um, so every seven years or every 50 years you follow the year of Jubilee, um, your debt was forgiven. That's totally different than what we might think of with slavery, right? Remember, this is not punishment. We just read a verse a second ago. Um, actually, let's just keep going. So, and when you let him go free from you, y'all see where I'm at? And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. I command you this day. I love that. And then he talks about how I'll be a slave forever. Um, and it's pretty much the exact same verse we just did. He says that when you actually let your slave go, and Carson finally, uh, it's six years, and Carson says, John, you've done a great job. Go ahead and get out of here. He didn't just say like, well, whatever. I guess it's been six years. So according to this law, you have to go, I guess. And then like hits me on the way out and I walk off. He says, hey, John, you did great. Uh, here's a sheep. <laughs> and, you know, like take something. And, and he gives me what I need for my journey to set me up for success. One of the cool things about slavery is that Carson would actually have taught me a trade as well. He would have taught me the skill. Carson, what do you want to be? You want to be a shepherd? You want to be a, a craftsman? What do you want to be? You want to be shepherd? Shepherd. All right. Car Carson the shepherd. And uh, so Carson would have taught me, like, here's how you take care of a flock. And so what he would have done, he would have said, you know what? I'm going to give you a little mini flock and let you grow. And, like, he would have set me up for a position for success with a trade and with skills. So this is what Old Testament slavery was. Um, Y'all remember that verse we just looked at a second ago? It was the Exodus 21, I think the, the 16 one. And it said that, if, I'm sorry, the 26 one. It says that if you hit someone and his eye comes out, 
First of all, you're slapping that guy a little hard. And <laughs> if uh, it's like that Batman slap meme, um, if you hit someone and his eye comes out, you actually he, his term's over. I don't care if it was day two and it was a six-year term, and you got frustrated and Carson just slapped me, my eye popped out. Um, you know, I would be set free. Why? Because that is not how this this system is supposed to work. So we say slave, and we automatically think civil war, right? And we've got to retrain our mind when we hear slave. And so someone says, hey, man, do you know there's slavery in the Bible? You'd be like, you know what? You're right. Do you know it's really good? Like, it was useful. Like, it was helpful for someone who was poor. It was helpful for someone who couldn't pay off their debt. Now, was it a perfect system? No, it wasn't the perfect system. But do you know it was a million times better than anything else that was culturally around in that world? Do you know the when you actually look at the world, slavery was huge, that everyone was involved in slavery, but scripture, uh, the Old Testament slavery shows a totally different way to do it. Matter of fact, the Anchor Bible Dictionary says this. It says that we have in the Bible, it's the first appeals in world literature to treat slaves as human beings for their own sake and not just for their master's sake. So we have scripture. It's the first place that slavery says treat them like humans. What? What a novel idea. Scripture saying that. Um, so another way that you can think about this is that slavery in the Old Testament was kind of like colonial America. Um, if someone was going to travel across the pond, if you want to say that, right, to come to America from Europe, they, if say they were leaving Britain and they didn't have enough money, what they would say is like, hey, I'm going to sell myself to you and serve as an employee for this trip, and I'm going to work at the, whatever farm you come to for five years as a way of paying for my voyage. Um, that's a much better analogy of that. Matter of fact, you know, one half to two-thirds of white immigrants from British colonies actually did that. They sold themselves to someone who had more money in order that they could actually cross uh, the ocean. So... This idea of slavery that the Old Testament talks about, a little bit more like that. So, how does God actually view the slave? Let, we need to think about that. Why? Because this gives us a lens into God's morality and how God views people. Okay? So, we're actually, uh, we're going to skip a few verses back there, Miss Nia. Go to Genesis 1. In 26 through 27. Now, what does God say about humanity at the beginning of creation? He says that, let's make man in our image, God's talking, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then, so God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Side note, this is, can also be a verse to talk about uh, the sexism in the Bible. Um, but we see here that all humans are image bearers of God. Every single human. And that, that God's um, viewpoint, he doesn't necessarily have to make a sentence that says, I view slaves just as equally as I view humans. Right? That's a terrible sentence. God would never say that. He doesn't make sentences that we are like need to say. This is God's stance on slavery. He just makes sentences based upon humanity. We're the ones that decided to place them into different slave categories. And so he says that God, all humans are made in the image of God. I mean, okay, I found this really cool verse in Job. Job chapter 31. 
Job's talking. Job's kind of this emotional guy. He goes on weird rants. He's, I love the guy, right? Emotional, goes on weird rants. Yeah. All right. So, uh, sounds kind of like a Cowboys fan after Sunday night. Just, <laughs> and he just goes on weird rants. And here's what he said. And he's talking about slaves just randomly. He says, if I've rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? He's saying, like, if I didn't listen to what they said, what am I supposed to do when God calls me out on it? When he makes an inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Uh, Listen, what do you see there? You see Job saying equality among men, whether the slave owner or the slave. You see equality among men. This is going to be a key thing when we get into what New Testament slavery looked like. One other small point I want to talk about. In Leviticus chapter 25, we're not going to go there, but Leviticus says that if someone is a slave in a neighboring region and they flee to you, what you're supposed to do is take them in and care for them. That law was completely prohibited by all other societies. And strict punishment was, came as a result of all of that. So if, if, a, if a neighboring uh, region slave... And they, they fled from their captivity, maybe because they heard what, what slave life was over here. And they're like, man, I want some of that. And so they, they ran to be, be part of Israel. Israel's law said to take them in, bring them into the fold, bring them part of the family, just like you would if someone who was an actual Israelite. But nowhere else in society was that deemed okay, and that was met with harsh punishment. Yet God makes it a rule to care for that individual. Do y'all just see an abundance of God's care here? Um, okay, so I want us to look um, a little bit more. In Deuteronomy 5, I, don't, don't throw the verse up there. In Deuteronomy 15, God says this. God says that his desire is that there would be no poor among the Israelites. Okay? Um, but he sets in place this system that because there are poor... This is how the poor can help their economic growth. So what you have here is you have God whose stance on poverty is that he's against it. Okay? And then you have a realist God who understands there's sin in the world. It's a fallen world. There will be poverty. And he says in that moment that what you do with the poor is he's created this system where they can sell themselves to this family. Remember that, that language, it rubs us the wrong way, but it, it's a good thing. He can, he giving them an opportunity to learn a trade, giving them an opportunity to have a better life. So what we're actually seeing there is God's heart towards poverty. God's heart towards poverty is, is creating a system. This is another one we can just throw into the morality of God. We're, under, we're beefing up our understanding of the morality of God. God's heart towards poverty is that he's against it. And he is always about systems that help eradicate poverty. And so the system of slave ownership was really a system that helped poverty. It wasn't about punishing a slave or getting mad at a slave for something. It was about combating poverty. Does that make sense? Is this making sense? Okay, I know this is like, I'm guessing, how many of y'all have ever heard a lesson about slavery in church before? Yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, okay. So, y'all ready for the New Testament? All right, so that's Old Testament. Now, slavery context in the New Testament. All right, I am not doing that bad on time. Now, this blew my mind. So New Testament is written in a Roman society, right? 
So New Testament culture is different than Old Testament culture. I know, I wish I could just say, man, this is Bible culture. But there's a lot of hundreds and years of Bible and culture changes. Like, no one dabs anymore. Like, culture changes. And so, New Testament culture is different than Old Testament culture. So, in the New Testament culture, you're living in a Roman population. Rome is, they're the guy. They're the head honcho. They're calling the shots, right? Uh, sorry, Carson. <laughs> Rome took you over. And uh, so, but in Rome civilization, 85 to 90% of Rome's population were enslaved. 85 to 90%. That's a lot. So slavery was everywhere. So when you read New Testament, slavery's everywhere. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. 85 to 90%. Slaves were considered master's property, and they did not have legal rights. Uh, very oddly, this is just a side note, they could start their own business. They had no legal rights, but they could start their own business. I don't get it. It seems strange to me. They could start their own business, which they could do is they could try to make money in order to purchase their freedom. And their jobs could be anything from a, a servant to being like a business agent representative of the family. Um, so some of the jobs that for servants were great jobs and other jobs were lowly. So your quality of life, if you were a slave in Roman culture, kind of just depend on what you were kind of going for. So with that being said, slavery in the New Testament is different than slavery in the Old Testament because slavery in the Old Testament, Israel sets up a structure of slavery. We call it slavery, but it was more like an indentured servant. We use that term when we talk about Old Testament slavery. Indentured servant, someone that would buy back. So, Old Testament slavery, right? But in the New Testament, the church doesn't get that opportunity to create this is the structure we're going to live in. They're living in a structure that's already created for them. Does that make sense? And so they're living in a place where slavery is this. And this is what slavery is. You cannot change this. 85 to 9% of it. Slaves have no legal rights. Slaves are master's property. This is what slavery is. And so New Testament, when it talks about slavery, it's talking about slavery within that system. It's not talking about slavery that they've created, a system they've created. They're talking about it within that system. That makes sense? Do you see the, the difference there? So, New Testament, they're living in a system that Roman culture has already created. Old Testament, they created the system of slavery that was good. That was the indentured servant model. Does that make sense? So, in that, the New Testament actually says a lot about slavery. We're going to, like, Bible drill this real quick. So, let's go to Galatians 3 real quick. I want you all to just get an overview of what people say about slavery in the New Testament. Galatians 3. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. We talked about that earlier. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God. You are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have been put on Christ. And then he goes on to say, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's male nor female. Once again, the Bible is not sexist. Uh, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Look at that. There is no longer slave nor free. Okay. So he's talking about a different, he's talking about when, when you come to understand, have a relationship with God, there is not, well, they're a slave and I'm a freed man, so I'm better. Or like, I'm Jew and he's Greek, so I'm better. Or I'm male and a female. Like, it's, that, no, 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 no. You are a child of God, and that is your identifying marker. So the way that they're going to do that, we're going to look at this, but the way that they're going to combat slavery in the New Testament isn't to kick down the doors of the slave house and say, I'm, we're done. 
torch this sucker. What they're going to do is they're going to completely rewrite social norms and saying that there will not be barriers between this person and this person, but we will all be together as a family. Look at Colossians 3. This is that word all is going to come up. Colossians 3.11. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He's saying, look, we got to get rid of these ideas. And Colossians also goes on to say in verse 22 that bondservants, so now Paul is talking to slaves. It says, bondservants, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. He actually, the Bible has a section that's written to slaves. This is crazy. All right, so, whew, I need to breathe. I got a little fired up. All right. Not by way of eye services, people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartedly for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord. Go to the next, go to the verse four, next one, next slide. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now we can read that and someone can say, did you know there's slavery in the Bible? And did you know that Paul right here, Paul doesn't, doesn't come out and say, Slavery's bad. Don't do it. You know, the Bible doesn't speak up against social injustice. Did you know, did you know that? And we just smile and we say, you know what? I'd love to have a conversation about that. And because what he's actually doing is making a very bold sentence about social injustice, but he's not doing it from a political standpoint. He's doing about it from rewriting social frameworks. Okay? So, he actually writes stuff for that. So there's no slave and master. We're all one in Christ Jesus. All in all. We're also do fair treatment. Uh, matter of fact, we're not going to go there, but in First Peter, this is a little nuance, but Peter actually writes to a slave who's being harshly tr- treated, treated. And who's receiving harsh treatment. There we go. And he says, here's how you honor the Lord in the midst of that. Wow. What a timely verse. That could be used throughout years of slavery. In Philemon, it's like the smallest book in the Bible. It's like the book of the Bible you read when like, you, you want to like feel good about reading a whole book in the Bible. And it, cause it's one chapter. And you're like open to Philemon. And you're like, I read a whole book today. <laughs> Super Christian. And so we, you read Philemon. The story of Philemon's pretty cool. Um, but I want you to look at this. Paul, Philemon's actually um, a slave owner. And there's this guy who's a slave named Onesimus. You guys want to name your kid that? Onesimus. Yeah, probably not. All right. So there's this slave back, and he says this. For this is perhaps why we parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, as a slave, but more than a slave, as a brother, especially to me, but how much more to you. Paul is encouraging Philemon to welcome back Onesimus, not just as a slave, but as a brother. Do you see how the New Testament is rewriting the social framework between slave owners and slaves? Yes, slavery was real in the Roman culture. Yes, it was totally real. But he was saying, you know what? View them like a brother. He's saying, if you have a slave, okay. Say you have a slave and his name is Onesimus. You know what you're going to do with that slave? What you're going to do is you're going to view him completely like you view uh, your brother, you're going to view him like family, and you're going to bring him into the, your, you're going to love on him, and you're going to take care of him. All of a sudden, slave becomes more of a technicality of a word. Do y'all see that? Like, technically I have slaves, yeah, but they're not, like, beneath me. They're just 
like my friends and I care for them and, and we love each other and we support each other like brothers. And so what they're doing is that he's doing the best that he can do in the system that God has placed them in, in, in the Roman system. Is that making sense? And so what he's, he's rewriting social framework. If you look um, in Romans, Paul specifically addresses slaves in his, at the very end of his letter. And he, he calls them Andronicus and a couple other names. Um, these guys were slaves. And he by name mentions them along with other people and calls them his fellow brother and calls them his fellow worker. You see that there was identity placed on slaves in New Testament literature. Now remember, what was the part about um, slavery context in the New Testament is that they didn't have any legal right and they were master's property. But what New Testament literature does, they place identity and they place um, value back into the individual. Does that make sense? Uh, One last verse. I think we're doing great in time. Revelations 18. This is a really cool verse. Um, I just wanted to share it with you guys. I couldn't help but not share it. So in Revelation, this is like doomsday stuff, right? So Revelation's happening, and this is apocalyptic, and um, there's a city named Babylon, and they're getting in trouble. And they're getting in trouble. Well, trouble's a light word. They're getting, like, incredibly doomed. And uh, they're getting judged, and one of the things that they're getting judged for is that they had slaves. Check out some language here. Um, we're going to... Oh, just, just read with me. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels. Okay, skip down. And sheep, last line, sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is human souls. Okay, merchants no longer buy their cargo, slaves. So, I love this. A city, look at God's, look at God's care for those who are enslaved. Look at God's care. Um, look at also God's pure frustration. We have a city who views humans as slaves, and more than that, views slaves as cargo in this text. Okay? And God completely destroys them as a result. He's not about it. He is not about that at all. Babylon is actually punished for the involvement in the slave trade. So, what do we say about New Testament slave-master relationships? Well, slaves were to treat their masters in a dignified way, just like masters were to treat their slaves in a dignified way. And both were to do so because of their new identity in Christ. Remember, the New Testament's all about writing. What does it look like to be in New Testament in Christ? All right. So, the major themes that we've seen in the New Testament is that there's equality. Um, and I just want to point out again, there is no direct political refute in the New Testament scripture uh, that you can say, and then Paul went to Congress, Roman style, and like said, here's what you need to talk about. Slavery needs to end. There's no William Wilberforce, right? Y'all remember William Wilberforce, the guy who stood up? Okay, there's no Abraham Lincoln. Y'all remember Abraham Lincoln? There we go. Hey. All right, there's no person who stood up and said, that's wrong politically. And what he's doing, but okay, so are we upset about that? Let's breathe. What, what Paul is doing and what all of New Testament scripture is doing is they're rewriting this idea that the way that you interact with people 
is we have to just rethink it. We've got to rethink it. We've got to rethink it. So the way that they went around that was they rethought person-to-person relationships. And, that's, and so instead of doing this giant political reformation, they rethought, because one, they didn't have any power, right? The Romans had power, not the church. And two, what they did have is they had relationships. They had the church, and they're going to rework the way they did the church. But as a little side note, when um, Constantine takes over, I think, what, 4th century, 8th century, 8th century, um, and Christianity kind of like becomes cool, right? One of the very first things that they push Constantine to do is they say, hey, you got to get rid of the slavery. They're one of the very first things when Christianity finally, when Christians finally get a voice, one of the very first things they speak up and say is like, slavery's got to go. Now, Constantine said no, and slavery kept going. But it, what they did is they stood up in that moment to declare and speak out against the evil. So, why, 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 why? Why do we look at this? Why do we spend Sunday, Sunday morning when I could be in bed? Why do we spend it in here talking about slavery? And before we do that, bottom line is that Scripture and God do not endorse slavery. Is there, is there slavery mentioned in Scripture? Yes. But they do not endorse what we think of when we think of slavery and what everyone might think of when they tell you that there's slavery in Scripture. I could have done this exact same argument from a genocidal perspective, from a sexism perspective, from a racism perspective, from a blank perspective, okay? And all of that goes in to say that we have to answer two questions. This, this study of whether or not slaves or whether or not the Bible's sexist or genocide, right? The answer is like, no, it's, it's totally fine. Um, but it begs the question, is God moral? And the reason that is such an important question, because if God is not moral, then the scripture that teaches us about God, it's going to contradict itself if we believe that scripture is moral and God is not moral. And we never, scripture and God are never going to contradict themselves, right? And so if God is immoral, but we believe scripture to be moral, then they're contradictory. Well, if we believe that God is moral, but scripture is actually immoral, then they contradict each other. And so we have to understand that God is moral and scriptural is, scripture is moral. Why is it important that God is moral? Well, morality is something that all of us have and all of us gather from. And morality is something that everyone on our campus of SFA deals with. Morality is something that we have to understand the origin of it. If we are the origin of our own morality, we are like the beginning. When I talked about law. If we're the origin of our own morality... That means that we're the ones setting the laws and the rules and regulations. And when I set my own laws, often I lead, it leads to chaos, right? And I'm, and I get in, I'm like a hamster. I always use this analogy, but I'm a hamster just running around not doing anything. I'm just stuck. I'm in a cage and I'm just running. And because I'm trying so hard to set my own goals of what morality is, trying to understand the world, to process the world, and the world just seems confusing after a while. But if God sets the rules for morality that he sets the rules for understanding the structure that we live in. If God sets the rules for morality, he sets the rules on what's right and wrong, and he's the guiding force. So we have to ask the question, is God moral? And can the morality of Scripture be trusted? Can we trust Scripture? If we can trust Scripture, 
then this goes in directly into next week. See, all these things are related. Can we trust Scripture? Well, we're talking about the science the Bible interact. Can we trust Scripture? Last week we said yes, we can trust Scripture. All right, can we trust Scripture? We might have moral problems. Yes, we can trust Scripture. So if, if we can trust Scripture, then what role does Scripture get to actually have in our life? And we get to look at that next week. And how do we interact with Scripture? It's because what happens when we read Scripture and Scripture is contrary to the way that we think. Our moral code may say, man, this isn't necessarily wrong. It's nothing totally wrong with what I'm doing. I, yeah, say You can put in blank, right? And all of a sudden, Scripture says something different. What we have to do in that moment is trust the morality of Scripture and say, okay, no, but, but I hold fast into what Scripture says. And Scripture actually gets the opportunity to change my morality. Scripture gets the opportunity to... to um, reflect in my life to change who I am. Because we're going to be placed in a position, and I'll leave you with this thought. We're going to be placed in a position one time where what we think is in direct contradiction to what Scripture thinks. And I'm not, I'm trying not to be like your granny beating you over the head with Scripture here. What I, what I am trying to say is that Scripture it has, is meant to have a prominent role in our life because it's going to push us to who God is. It's going to push us into how do we actually know that God? How do we interact with that God? And how do we live on this earth? In the living out on this earth, if Scripture is moral and the standard, then we have to give it that access in our life. Does that make sense? And so we look at things like science, we look at things like moral objections be, as a way of just kind of helping our mind go, no, no, I can trust Scripture. I can completely trust Scripture. Well, what about this? You can trust Scripture. You can trust Scripture. And if someone comes up to you and they're like, man, I heard this about the Scripture, and I don't know what to think about it. Well, first of all, you know, breathe. <laughs> I just love saying that. And then have a conversation with someone about it. Man, this was in Scripture. Like, they, they said this, or they said this. Let's have a conversation about it. But remember, build your foundation don't be shaky. Don't be shaky. Can, all those other things that can withstand. Scripture can withstand that. So, all right. This is one of our last more lecture-based types. We get to really look at how do we interact with Scripture next week, and I'm excited about that. Um, so, I'm going to pray for us. And uh, y'all smiling? Everyone smile. Everyone smile. Are we all smiling? Are we having fun? All right, good. Hey, we, when mom asked you what you learned about today, say slavery. And uh, so, okay. So, let's go ahead and let's pray. God, thank you. Um, well, there's a lot, Lord. Um, thank you for your scripture that's our guiding light. Thank you that it leads us and it teaches us who you are. Yes, God. Lord, may we uh, submit ourselves to your scripture and live with you. May we walk with you and talk with you. May we give ourselves to you. I believe what John 10.10 10 says my whole heart, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But you've come so we can have life, have it abundantly. And God, the abundant life with you is the life that's lived um, with you reading scripture and giving ourselves to you through that. God, may this make sense. And um, I pray for interesting conversations over lunch about slavery. <laughs> God, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.